Our Bible reading today is in the book of Colossians 3, 1 to 17. This is a letter from Paul to churches in Colossae. And he wanted them to see how majestic and wonderful things are for them when they have Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So Colossians 1, 1 to 17. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you die, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of this, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourself of all such things as this, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy languages from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentiles or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Thank you, Susie. Oh, I'm... I'm a bit loud, I'm not normally that loud in the morning, ask my family, I don't say a lot till I have my first coffee, but lucky for you I had a double shot this morning so I'm ready to go. Um, it's great to be here to open God's Word with you. Um, I, was I was reflecting as I prepared uh, for this message that at, a, at an earthly level, for me, in my mind, there's etched seven moments in time. The first one of them is when I first met my wife, Christina. Yes, that was on our honeymoon, that one. Um, she said she doesn't like it, so I use it quite often. No. Um, and and it was, we'd met the first time and we conversed really well. We got along well. 
and then we went out later on for a date and in my mind I can remember that first date, I remember what she wore, I remember where I parked, um, yeah, and, and remember everything about that day. And then obviously for me the other six moments in my life are, are the birth of my six children. Uh, those of you who are blessed to have had uh, childbirths which were largely uncomplicated will be able to attest to the, that feeling when those kids come into the world. It's just amazing. And I am an emotional person. Even now, a tear can come to my eyes. I remember those moments that they were born. They are the loves of my life, and that is why they're etched in my memory. And as I think about them, the question becomes, what effect have those loves on my life had? And I think first and foremost, they changed my orientation because before I met Chris and before we had kids, the priority in my life was me. I lived for me. My life was thinking about what's good for me. Whereas when we met and we got married and we had kids, it was no longer just about me, it was about them, what's best for them, what's best for us. Looking to and, and, and planning for the future with them in it became the orientation. And so from that orientation, that necessarily impacted my actions. So I was no longer out with mates on the weekend. I was no longer spending money frivolously. I was no longer at work doing a lot of overtime, but rather it was time at home. It was being financially astute trying to keep my work in a work box that didn't overflow into family time. My, my weekly golf, unfortunately, became yearly golf. <laughs> and my handicap can attest to that. So over the last seven weeks, we've been working our way through two ways to live. Uh, and, and really what we've been looking at within that is the, the saving work of Jesus. Dying on the cross and God raising him from the dead, earning our forgiveness so we can have a right relationship with our Heavenly Father. What a wonderful reminder. And as we've been going along, uh, we've been looking at, and, and, and some of us have been attempting to memorise some boxes. Um, and, and that's important in some ways because it helped educate us, helps us comprehend the gospel more and understand the connectedness between each of those areas. I hope that the last seven weeks has been more than a memory exercise for you. I hope it hasn't been just about memoring things because the gospel isn't about six boxes, it's not about eight boxes, it's not about ten boxes. And nor is it a, a merely cognitive activity. It, it can be known but it's not made just to be known. It'd be like saying my family's just made to be known. It's a relationship. It's to be enjoyed. It's to be explored. It's to be grown, experienced and deepened. And, and in many ways, our relationship with our Heavenly Father and our Lord and the Saviour and with the Holy Spirit is like any other relationship but in some ways it's slightly different, drastically different, I'd say. 
and I'll come back to that at the end. So as we came to see last week, there's two, there's a choice, you've got two ways to live. Uh, which will you choose? Now today I'm coming from the premise that we choose to live God's way, that that becomes our new identity. Uh, the, that identity will necessarily impact our actions and we will find that the gospel will transform our hearts and it will change our lives. So this morning I, I really want to focus in on the so what. If I know uh, and by faith I accept Jesus as my Lord and Saviour, what should my life look like? And to do that, I want to look through that lens of Colossians 3, which Susie just read for us. And Paul's writing this church, this, this letter to the church in Colossae, and um, he's helping them address how does our relationship with God through Jesus Christ affect us? So if you've got a Bible or an app there, it'd be great to have it open because I'm going to sort of bounce through it. Uh, some of the verses will come up on the screen though. But specifically today, I want, I want to focus on how does, what orientation change is there because of the gospel? And then how does that relate to action change? And what are some of the personal do's and don'ts that Paul talks about? How do we look inside the church? What do we do inside the church? And then what do we do outside the church? So in chapters 1 and 2 of Colossians, Paul's very much doing a two ways to live with them. He didn't have all the boxes, but largely he went through and he said, this is a gospel. And so he comes to that point of going, okay, let me lay it on the line for you. And he starts with verse 1, where he says, "'Since then you have been raised with Christ.'" What Paul's saying there is when, when Christ died, we died. When he rose, we've been raised with him. Now, with that solid foundation, with that gospel foundation and that awareness that you're raised to new life, what effect should it have? What should you do? What does that gospel-shaped life look like? Well, he first of all tells them it's an orientation change. Set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He's saying here that that should be your orientation. The throne room of God should be where you orient yourself. The priorities there become the priorities here. So the first question for us is, has the gospel changed your orientation in your life? Is that where your focus is? Do you see things differently? Because we should, brothers and sisters. We've been given that ability to glimpse into that throne room. I remember when I first started spending time with Christians here at the Lakes, because this is the only Christian church I've ever known. And, and one of the questions a lot of the fellas asked when I went to men's events was, is that bloke a Christian? And it got me at the start. I was like, man, why do you all ask that? I didn't ask anyone that. I just, in my own head, I was like, man, are they asking because they want to judge people? Are they asking because they want to look down on people? Are they asking because they want to go, man, we're better than him? Why don't they ask, where does he live? What does he do for a living? How many kids does he have? What footy team does he follow? No, it was that. Is he a Christian? And what I've come to understand across time is that's the only question that it matters. The answer to that question 
is the only thing that matters in the end. And those people asked that question because they cared about those other people, not because they wanted to judge them. One of my favourite passages in the Bible is in Matthew 17, the transfiguration of Jesus. Jesus goes up the mountain with Peter, James and John. And when he goes up there, we're told that his face sunlight sorry shone 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 like the sun and Moses and Elijah appeared and Jesus was talking with them this was like a a prefiguring of Jesus's coming back in glory it was amazing and what's Peter's response to that earth changing that reorienting event it is good that we are here let's build three shelters Basically what Peter's saying is, this is so good, let's live here, let's stay here, let's not go back down there, let's, let, I'll build them, I'll do it, you know, I'm not real good at building, but I'll build them and we can just live here forever, I so want to live here. I love Peter, I reckon he's so much like, I'm going to say all of us, but I'm going to own it, he's so much like me. His frontal lobe doesn't work and he blurts stuff out and he goes, oh man, like he's the one, Jesus goes, wash your feet, you're not washing my feet. You'll deny me, nah, I'm never going to do it. I'll always be there with you. Hey, can I walk on water? He's the one everyone else goes, wish I'd said that, but I didn't have the gumption. But he did. And here he goes, man, let's just live here. Let's stay here forever. You know those moments in life where it's just, it seems perfect. You just want to bottle it and you go, man, I could live this moment forever. I remember uh, once going for a walk in the Blue Mountains with my family. It was early in the morning. It was a typical Blue Mountains morning. The, the mist was down and as we walked through the valley floor, the, the mist started to rise and the sun shone through and you felt the heat of the day on your back. It was absolutely glorious. I was walking with my family and I remember just thinking, I was walking at the back watching and I thought, man, I could just pause time here and be, ah, it'd be beautiful. It'd be so good. That for us, brothers and sisters, is the throne room of God. Those moments where we connect and we think, oh, come Lord Jesus, come. Because we're oriented to the throne room. We want things to be Jesus as Lord and Saviour of the whole world. And we want to live in that perfect world. So once we've accepted that we're raised with Christ and we're oriented to the throne room, where Jesus and our Heavenly Father are, what are we to do? We've got this changed orientation. Are we to, to build a walled community and just sort of live there forever? Well, that has been the response of some across history. For example, there are a bunch of people called the Anchorites. They were in the 1100s to the 1500s. For about 400 years, they were around. They, would, they were a bunch of people who would voluntarily place themselves in a cell attached to a church. And so they might pray prayers, they might receive the Lord's Supper, but they lived a solitary, monastic, prayerful life. Many of them were actually walled into the church, like the example here, and the bishop would come past and put his seal on the last brick that went there, and so the person lived out the rest of their life in that cell. They were bought food and their ablutions were taken away. Is, is that what we're meant to do? Because that's what the Colossians were doing. They were doing it differently. They were becoming super spiritual, like, whoa, we're super monks. Paul told them, no. 
And the gospel tells us that's not to be our response. Because let's go back to the transfiguration. When Jesus went up to the mountain and his face shone and he, he got to talk with others and he got to think of that time he's coming back, what did he do from the gospel? He went straight down the mountain. He taught. He healed. He faced opposition. And then he set his face to Jerusalem because he had a job to do. And brothers and sisters, we have a job to do as well. We are not to wall ourselves up and live separate to our community. And in this passage, Paul tells them, get your head in the game. Get your head in the game. This life is not the landing point. We are to have a future orientation, absolutely. But in order to do that, we sacrifice things now in the awareness of what is to come. Our lives and our life choices should be very different to that of our non-Christian neighbours. One person who exemplified this orientation uh, and how it changes your priorities was a man by the name of Jim Elliott. A number of you would have heard of Jim. His wife Elizabeth Elliott wrote their uh, book, Through the Gates of Splendour. Jim was an American evangelist uh, and in 1956, at the age of 28 years, he was martyred. He'd spent many years attempting to reach an unreached people in Ecuador. He felt God's calling on his heart to go and reach these people. And for many years, he tried to reach them with the gospel. And on January 8, himself and a number of other Christians were speared by those they were attempting to reach the gospel with. And Jim is quoted as saying, he is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He's talking there about the crown of life. He, he realised that in his new birth, being raised with Christ, this new life was all that mattered. Nothing else mattered. And so quite the opposite to shrinking away from life, Jim Elliot went headlong into it. And in verse 2 of our passage here, Paul implores his Christian brothers to do the same. He says, set your mind on things above and not on earthly things. And I think by that, by setting your mind on things above, what he's, what he's talking about there is try and express the priorities of God's kingdom in the midst of everyday life. And I think it's really useful that he then talks about setting your mind on earthly things. And by that he means the values of our world system that live in direct opposition to God's plans and God's will. And so then he moves to action change. Paul encourages them and us, in light of this new life, the new orientation, what actions will flow from it? Well, he gives us a list of do and don'ts, do's and don'ts. Verse 5, put to death. Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. I wonder if sometimes we, we read that list of things and we quickly move past without truly stopping down and considering whether we're taking that direction to heart. As, um, as evangelical Christians... We are 100% convinced of the truth that we are only saved 
by faith in Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice on the cross. That is the gospel, that's the good news, absolutely. The danger as we come to actions and we speak about actions is we can possibly hear echoes of a a workspace theology that I need to do these things to earn my salvation or I need to do these things to keep my salvation. And I reckon if we start to get a workspace theology, we run a country mile from it and I reckon we should. We should run a country mile from it. Because Jesus' death earned our salvation. It was too costly for us to then think we can do something about it. But what I would say is when we come to a list of do's and don'ts, we do need to take them seriously. Number one, because they're God's word. But number two, because I think they're the outworkings of someone who has had a changed orientation. When my heart is firmly fixed on the throne room of God and his priorities, my actions will be different. My actions need to be different. And so in short, Paul's saying to them and us, how we act matters. God cares. So the question is, are you amending your ways? Are you taking the opportunities available to address the issues in your life? Or is there unrepentant sin that you won't face? Are you treating the grace that Jesus won for you in some nonchalant way that sees it as nothing more than a get-out-of-hell-free card? God says, put it to death. Put it to death. He could not be clearer about what we are to do with these actions. Are you putting them to death or are you foolishly courting temptation? Own up to it, confess it, repent of it and then make every effort to end it. You know, I I know some guys in this church here who have dumb phones. They refuse to have a smart TV in their house. They have covenant eyes on their computer, even though it makes it clunky and slow. But their purity matters because they know it matters to God. And yet I also know others who said to me, that's too much of an imposition in my life. How committed are you? Elsewhere, Paul uses the word flee sexual immorality. Run from it. The Bible gives us a warning. It says, don't play around with sin. It will grab you. It will grab you quickly. It will pull you down. You need to recognise it for what it is. It's toxic and it's poisonous. It's a killer. A few years ago, my family and I, well, quite a few years ago, went on a a trip up through central Australia and uh, we came up to, I thought it was Burketown, but my wife reminded me the other day it was Burralula, um, up through the middle of Australia. And we pulled up next to a river and it was running fast. I can't remember what river it was. And Chris and the kids got out and there was a fellow next to us and his boat was up on the slips and he was taking the barnacles off it and he had his dog running around. 
And the kids, as they do, ran to the edge of the water and were playing with sticks. And I said, kids, jump back from the edge, eh? It's running fast and there are some crocs around here, so just, you know. And, um, and I went to get some fish and chips. And I came back from getting the fish and chips. And the kids were still, they hadn't listened to me, they still weren't. They had their sticks in the water. And Chris and I started setting up for uh, lunch. And then this bloke started running around the place making a bit of a kerfuffle. And I got to talk to him. I said, what's going on? He said, a croc's taken my dog. What do you reckon I did with my kids? Did I say, hey, just step back, kids? I grabbed them and I pulled them away. Sin's like that. Sin isn't just some innocuous thing that, ah, it will take you down in a death roll. You're no match for it, brothers and sisters. Our history proves that. I think we're asked to live in such a radically different way. Paul, uh, Paul uses urgent language here. Our society is completely oblivious to the levels of sexu- sexual immorality occurring. I don't think advertising executives are. I think they're very clever. We're encouraged to fill up our boots with sexual gratification. We're, we're not hurting anybody else. That's what we're told. The Bible tells us you are. You're hurting God and you're hurting yourself. And I know, even at a purely secular level, in my job as a psychologist in the past, I can attest to the damage that people are doing to their own identity and their relationships in behaving in this worldly, sexualized way. And the Bible more strongly tells us that spiritually... We are damaging ourselves. The Bible says, kill it. Now, Paul hasn't completed his list of do's and don'ts. He continues on. He says, get rid of, rid yourself of, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, lying. Wow. If that list hasn't hit every one of us sitting here today, then we're doing pretty well. How do we battle these things? Well, praise God we don't do it alone. In verses 10 and 11, Paul tells us we do it by the new self. The new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. We're being renewed. We're being made new. When we put our head in in, in God's word, when we pray to him, when we connect with him, internally we're being made new. We're being changed. We're no longer ourselves. Paul says there's no longer any distinction between races or societal levels because we are in Christ and Christ is in us. Paul makes that amazing claim about there's no more societal, no more class distinctions. Now, here that's semi-countercultural. Back then, that was massive. I'm reading a book at the moment called Damascus. Uh, it's not a book I'd necessarily recommend you read. It's, it's pretty full-on. It's written by a non-Christian guy about the life of Paul. And um, he's got some interesting claims in the book that I wouldn't connect with. But um, 
what I found really useful in the book, one thing was just to see the, the, um, the way that Christians were treated. They were absolutely hated. They were despised. And one of the big reasons they were despised was because of the breakdown of the caste system. That these Christians called one another brother and sister and they welcomed one another with a kiss to the Romans, to the Jews, to the free people. That was absolutely abhorrent. And they were treated with disdain for it. And Paul's saying here, so he's saying, if you're a Gentile, you no longer fight these sins, these things you face with as a Gentile. If you're a Scythian, you no longer fight them as a Scythian. You fight them as Christ. That's the same as us, brothers and sisters. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead is in each one of us. The Holy Spirit that was poured out at Pentecost, that, that resulted in that phenomenal growth of the church against all odds, that proven power lives inside each one of us. That should inspire us because it means we're not bound by our past failures, our habits, our limitations. We're bound by Christ's limitations. And he, brothers and sisters, is limitless. So Paul then pushes further in and says, in this new shared identity, what are we to do? What are we to do inside the church? And in verses 12 to 14, he tells us, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with each other, forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. How are you going with that list? Compassion. Do you look out for members in our congregation who struggle? Or are you content just talking to those you feel comfortable with? Do you walk out at morning tea time and see someone sitting at a table by themselves and you sort of turn your head and you walk to the people who you know you'll have a nice conversation with? Or do you go over and try and make conversation? Kindness. Do you invite people over for a cuppa or for a meal, especially those who can't repay you? Do you see a bin full here at church and think, eh, someone else better empty that bin? Do you notice there's no loo paper, but you don't do anything about it? A good question, I reckon, to ask ourselves in interactions with our brothers and sisters here at church is what does kindness look like in this situation? Humility. Are you humble, teachable, or are you a Christian who believes you know it all? Have you sat in two ways to live and thought, eh, I've heard all this before and closed your ears. Are you willing to join a ministry team where you need to humbly serve others and get no visual recognition? Patience. Do you sit in judgment of others? Do you watch your clock 
during the service and think, gosh, we've gone 10 minutes over. Are you patient when the little kids scream and make lots of noise and don't behave in a way that would help us concentrate? Forgiveness. Has someone hurt you in the Christian community? And if they have, I'm sorry. Have you come to understand that you need to forgive them? Or do you stubbornly hold on to your resentments? Gratitude. Do you complain about the lack of morning tea or the songs that were sung today? Do you fail to recognise the many blessings that come your way? Love, brothers and sisters, is practising these things on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis. Now, I, I, I want to very quickly add, brothers and sisters, that we, I believe in our community, we have many wonderful examples of gospel orientation in real action. I am hoping that the questions that I've just asked there might aspire us all to align more with God's expectations of our community. We need to realise that many of the things that are spoken about there, they're not natural. They are decisions that we choose to make on a moment-by-moment basis or we choose not to make them. We had a great wedding here the other day uh, with Lu Ming and Jin Cha. Uh, Jin Cha goes to our 10.30 service and um, and the whole uh, church congregation was invited along and I've got a photo up there of the lovely couple and some random bloke who photobombed them. Pete held the service and uh, in his sermon he spoke about love and he shared this quote from Jennifer Aniston. I love that feeling of being in love, the effect of having butterflies when you wake up in the morning. I think, that's, I think she copied that from my wife, but no. <laughs> I thought that might get a laugh. Uh, let's face it, it's foolish to think that this is how relationships always are. They might start out that way and then we see the frailties of the other person. We see that their ways are different to ours and that loving feeling sort of goes away. But what Paul's saying here is he's saying love needs to continue. In the church, love needs to continue. And it is about practising all these things on a daily basis especially when we don't feel like it and it's hard how do we authentically do it because if you're like me i looked at that and i went man i'm i'm not even doing that at home let alone with a bunch of people who have spent enough time together to move beyond the butterfly feeling how do we do that Well, praise God that Paul gives us an understanding that we don't do it in our own strength. In verses 15 and 16, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. Paul here goes to our heart, our heart that is set on things above, our heart that is being transformed by the peace of Christ acting in us. God's word should dwell amongst us richly. It should be the centre of our time here at church and in our connections together as brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And then Paul goes to action change outside the church. He wrote this letter while he was in prison. And he asked his brothers and sisters to pray for him. Now, unlike me, he didn't ask for release. He didn't ask for his captors to be killed. He didn't ask for a not guilty verdict. What did he ask for? He said, pray for us, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, that I might proclaim it clearly as I should. And then he says to them, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace. Season with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. Paul here is saying those with a throne room oriented view to their lives don't just love their Christian brothers and sisters. They love those who don't yet know Christ. They love them enough to share the best news ever, knowing that it may very much result in derision, being ostracised, and in Paul's case, imprisoned, and in the end, beheaded. I used to be a youth worker. That's how I started my career as a psychologist. And I used to work at a homeless refuge. And one, one year, we decided to take the kids away to the theme parks. And so we whacked 12 homeless kids in a bus, and we chucked their bags on the roof. We tied the bags down, and me and a youth worker drove up the freeway. What could go wrong, right? Um, and the kids all got along pretty well. There were about a dozen of them, except for one young fella, Chris. And he was sitting at the back of the bus, and we're driving up the Pacific Highway, and Chris is there, and everyone else is talking. He's sitting by himself, and then he starts loudly going, one, two, three. And the kids are like, shut up, Chris. Stop it. Matt, he's annoying. And shut up. Four. Five. And the kid said, stop, they make him shut up. And I'm like, oh, man, we've got a long way to go. This will be great. So I walked down the back, and, of course, he's sitting by himself, and he's looking out the back. And, and I said, hey, Chris, you're really annoying people. Can you... Seven. And I said, mate, can you just stop and look at me? Yep. And I said, you're really annoying. What are you counting? He said, oh, I'm counting the bags as they fall off the roof of the bus. <laughs> and just as I turned around, a bag went off the back of the bus. And we pulled the bus over. I'm like, mate, why, why didn't you tell us? And he looked at his feet where his bag was and he said, because it wasn't my bag. <laughs> it wasn't my bag. Will you watch other people's bags go off the top of the bus and think, well, as long as it's not mine... I'm not really going to do anything about it. Will you be like Chris and go, I know my bag's safe. I know where my destiny is. I know that I'm saved. So I'll just sit back and be quiet. Or like Jim Elliot, or like Paul, or like many other Christians, will you step forward? Likely you won't have to die for your faith here in Australia. You may be asked some questions so that people try and prove you wrong and prove you're an idiot maybe people will stop talking to you inviting you over this time of year we've got carols 
We've got Christmas, we've got Good News Week, we've got plenty of flyers. What will you do with them? The story of Paul, I reckon, is a great example for all of us. He was captured, he was so gripped by the gospel that when he became saved, his priority was to, to, to save others. Nothing else. Having people as his greatest concern. In summary, I reckon what Paul's saying is that a life impacted by the gospel, the good news of Jesus, must lead to change actions because it results in a brand new person with a brand new identity. And the way that person expresses and supported that and, and, and is supported to, to live out that new identity is in a community of like-minded brothers and sisters who love one another, even in the midst of their inadequacies. And they focus on God's word, the love of Jesus and worshipping him. And all of that drives them out into a community to share that love. I started talking about the seven loves of my life, my family. My love, my, my actions of love towards them flow from a changed orientation. And might I add, those actions of love are, are inept, often wrong, often not always hitting the mark. To have that orientation with my family, I need to spend time with them. Otherwise, I can easily forget the gift that they are to me. I can lose that loving feeling and my actions become even less than. The same, it's the same with our relationship with God. We need to spend time with him in his word. We need to spend time talking to him, hearing from him. That is how that relationship will grow. But as I said, that relationship with our Heavenly Father is like no other relationship. Because unlike every other relationship, ultimately it's God who's doing the legwork here. He makes the relationship possible. Verse 12 tells us that we are his chosen people. He chose us. He chose you and you and you and you. His chosen people dearly loved by him. And Paul says that the way we do these actions, which we've been talking about, is not through our best efforts, our goodness, but verse 15 tells us it is through the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts. In verse 16, it is the message of Christ dwelling among us. Therefore, we need to gather we need to hear God's word. We need to share God's word amongst one another. Remind each other of his word. We need to sing songs of praise, worship together, pray together, but also pray individually that the Holy Spirit will continue to change our hearts because it is only that heart change that makes those actions possible. I want to give everybody a moment just to reflect, uh, firstly, where's your orientation at? Is it on things above, on God's priorities? Or is it on things below, 
earthly priorities that are set in direct opposition to God. Pray for God to give you that orientation. What about your actions towards your brothers and sisters? Are they ones of love, patience, kindness, humility, acceptance? Externally, are you concerned for the loss? Pray for God to allow the Holy Spirit and peace of Christ to rule in your heart and to dwell amongst us as brothers and sisters within our broader community so that we might shine his much-needed light into that community. I want to pray that this would be our individual and our corporate response. How about we pray? Father God, thank you that you loved us. Father, I thank you that you loved us enough to send Jesus and that by his saving act, make a relationship possible between you and us. And Father, with our orientation on that throne room, with our focus on your priorities, Father, by your spirit, may we be useful in this world, Father, by, by expressing those priorities in how we act, in what we say, Father, in what we do, and equally, Father, what we don't do. And Father, when we fall into these earthly behaviours, the things that the world sets in opposition against you. Father, help us to be quick to confess and to realign. More than anything, Father, may we be people of love because you are a God of love. Thank you for the two ways to live. Reminders, Father, may we be so gripped by this gospel that we run headlong towards any opportunity that you open for us to share this wonderful news with others. In this time of Christmas with carols and Good News Week, Father, go before us, preparing hearts so that they might respond favourably, Father, to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.